This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Today's scripture passage is found in the book of Luke, chapter 19, starting at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in my handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Amen. Amen. Um, Ever since I was maybe, I think, 15 is when I started working, you know, part-time, you know, odd jobs here and there. And I remember um, I just had a whole array of bosses. You have really good bosses, and you have really terrible, harsh bosses. There was one uh, internship in particular when I was in college that I was just really excited for. It was a um, kind of one of those once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. It was with a government agency in the U.S., so I'd be getting a minimum low-level security clearance, It'd be great for my resume when I graduate and for my future job prospects. Uh, And it was paid. It wasn't one of those slave labor internship jobs, right? And so I was really excited for this internship. And the summer came, and I'm I'm there my first day. I'm getting adjusted. I'm getting used to it. And things seem to be going well. Uh, But then after about a week or two, uh, one of my supervisors started to begin to show his true colors. Uh, and uh, it wasn't just my opinion. Uh, a lot of people in the office felt this as well. He was a harsh man. Um, he wasn't very friendly. He wasn't very kind. And being my immediate supervisor, he made my life 
very um, difficult to say the least. And I remember this excitement that I had for this internship was just, just all disappeared. Every day I dreaded going into the office. I was no longer motivated. I wasn't excited. There was no joy in the job. Uh, it continued on for a while like this. I was just miserable. And um, I, I guess by God's providence, halfway through, for whatever reason, I was transferred to another department. And the boss there, my supervisor there, was a great guy. You know, he had the respect of everyone in the office. He was kind. He was gentle. He was caring. He looked out for me and the other interns. And it totally changed my experience. Same job, but totally different. I was filled with joy. I wanted to go to work. I was learning and I was growing, and it was just exactly what I wanted. You know, I bring this up because for our faith, a lot of times, as we try to live out our Christian life, as we try to live out the ways that God instructs for us in his word, the way we view God greatly impacts how we live out our faith. And I bet a lot of us, most of us at some point in our faith, and some of us sitting here today have this view that God is a little bit harsh, right? That he deals with us harshly, that he's looking over our shoulders and we can't mess up, we can't make a mistake. And if we view God in this way, our walk, our journey is going to be difficult. We won't have that Christian joy and peace and comfort that comes with knowing and walking with the Lord. So our view of who God is is incredibly important for our journey. As we look at this passage in Luke today, as we look at this parable, it's going to teach us about how the king, Jesus, receives his kingdom, and then it's going to teach us about how his servants, us, are to live until the return of Jesus. And as we learn these two truths, we're going to see what kind of king that we serve. And the goal is, the hope is, we're going to see just how full of grace and how wonderful a king we serve is so that you would be able to be filled with joy as you live out your Christian faith. So let's begin by looking at a king to return, a king to return. Luke begins immediately by explaining why Jesus is telling this parable. Look down with me to verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem from Jericho. And as he's going along his way, he's healing people, he's performing miracles, he's teaching and telling parables. And as Pastor Shim preached last week, he came upon a man, Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector, and he declared that salvation had come upon his house. And so all these people who are following Jesus, observing this, hearing this, they had one expectation of Jesus as they were approaching Jerusalem. They were anticipating that Jesus would come and overthrow the Roman occupation. That was their idea of the kingdom of God coming down. That was their idea of salvation at that time. But of course we know that God had very different plans. So Jesus addresses their misunderstanding about the timing of God's kingdom and the nature of God's kingdom by telling this parable. Let's look back down in verses 12 and see how it starts. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Jesus often told parables uh, with things that would relate with the people in, in their daily lives. He would tell stories that would relate to their experiences and what they knew. And this parable is just that. It's based off of real, actual situations where the Jewish people, as they heard it, they would be reminded of it. We see that the nobleman went off to receive a kingdom. In this scenario, Jesus is the one who is going to go off to receive the kingdom. But what happened in Jewish history about 30 years prior to Jesus telling this parable was there was a man, Herod, um, Herod's son, Archelaus. So as Romans were ruling over the, the, the different nations and nation states as an empire, what they did was give each state an ability to rule, have a king for themselves. And so as Romans ruled over Judea, Israel, they would allow a king to be some more subordinate to Caesar, but also to rule over the people. And for the Judean uh, region, their king was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king under Caesar that ruled over Judea. And as soon as Herod the Great died, he had three sons who would divide the region of Judea to take over as king. And what Archelaus, one of the sons, needed to do was he needed to travel to Rome, go to Caesar, and say, hey, I want to be king, receive that kingship, and then go back and rule. But Archelaus was a hated man by the people. So the Jewish elders sent a delegation to Caesar to object to him ruling over that province in Judea. And in Caesar, being a politician, he did not give Archelaus a kingship, but he called him an enthrach. He gave him the title of enthnarch, which is basically a governor. And so this is a story that's coming to the people's minds as they hear Jesus' parable. And Jesus, again, he's using this point to illustrate a fact, a spiritual truth about his kingdom. Just as a noble man would need to go to a far land, Jesus would go to a far land as well. After his death, his resurrection, he would ascend to the Father in heaven. And that is where he would receive authority to be king. And it would be after a time, after a while, Jesus would then come and bring the fullness of God's kingdom with him and reign in the fullness as a king over all creation. It's not what the Jews had expected. They wanted salvation immediately from their political and economic and societal problems that they were facing from the Roman, their Roman oppressors. This is what their, their hope was in. And Jesus was correcting that thinking because Jesus did not come to fix their economic and political and social problems, but he came the first time for one purpose. And it was clearly shown to us and clearly expressed to the people, but they did not get it. It was the last verse in last week's passage, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came the first time to live, die, and rise again to save sinners. They could not wrap their minds around this. They could not understand it. And so Jesus is correcting their thinking by explaining, I'm on my way to Jerusalem right now. I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to die and I'm going to go away for a while, but there will be a day where I will return and reign in fullness. There are two major events or dates in a Christian's life. And though no, those dates are not your birthday 
or your mom's birthday, but it is the coming, first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus came and he died for you and then he went to heaven and graced us with the Holy Spirit, that is one of the most important events for the believer. And the second most important event for the believer is the day that Christ will come back. That is where our hope is as Christians. We have to live in light of this very imminent reality. One of the great um, you know, joys of being a kid is being promised to go to the amusement park, right? right? Your parents say, you know what? This summer, we're going to Disneyland. This summer, you know, I'm not a big fan. Six Flags, right? In the States, it's a big chain of amusement parks. When your parents tell you you're going to Six Flags, your heart just wells up with excitement. And so you feel invincible. You're riding your bike, you fall off, you scrape your knees, like, you know, I don't care. I'm going to go to Six Flags, right? You go to school, a kid might be bullying you. It's like, I don't care. I'm going to Six Flags this summer. You, it, it's your hope. You're, you're excited. You're anticipating it. And it helps you get through a whole array of things that life uh, challenges you with. And some of us, may, being teachers, right, we, we kind of have this anticipation as well. You know, we're at the end of the semester. Things are hard. And obviously, you're holding on because of your calling and, you, you know, you love what you do. But also, because summer break is coming really soon, right? And you're going to be able to enjoy the summer, right? We, we look forward to things. We have hope. And it gives us strength. It comforts us. It anchors us. And the second coming of Christ is meant to give us that hope. R.C. Sproul says it like this. Hope is called the anchor of the soul. Scripture says this in Hebrews 6.19. Because it gives us stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Living as a Christian in this broken, sinful, fallen world is difficult. There's trials, there's hardships. We have darkness that we don't understand. We toil with sin. We're persecuted and ridiculed. But we hold on to the certainty of God's promise that King Jesus will return. It's a very real, imminent promise. And when he returns, he will fix every wrong. He will restore everything back to perfection. Broken, corrupt political systems, things of the past, because we'll have a righteous king ruling over all. Economic problems and tiresome labor, Jesus will restore the abundance of this earth. And the work that we do, we will benefit and will receive the abundance of our labor. Social injustice that we face and that we see in the world, justice will be served by the one perfect judge. Sin, pain, sickness, death, all of it will be no more. Perfect restoration. We look forward to that day. That is where our hope is, that we have a king who is going to return. Next, we're going to look at a king to serve, a king to serve. As Jesus just illustrated that he's going to go to a king, uh, far country and then return. He's illustrating the nature of his kingdom and the timing of his kingdom. And then the rest of the parable goes on to show us that there are three different type of people as we wait for Jesus' kingdom to come. And hear this. Here's the thing. Everyone in this room, 
everyone in human history falls into one of these three types of people. So let's go through them one at a time. The first type of person we see is foes of the king. There are the foes of the king, right? In verse 14, it said, his citizens hated the nobleman. They were his enemies. They were his foes. And later in the parable, we see the fate of the foes of the king. In verse 27, it says, but as as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This verse continues to draw on the story of Archelaus, who went to the Roman, uh, to, went to Caesar to try to get his kingship. Uh, when he came back to Judea, what he ended up doing was he violently and ruthlessly slaughtered his enemies. So Jews would understand this portrayal that Jesus was making at this time. And Jesus is using such vivid language and shocking events, right, to express the severity the direness, the importance of what will happen to those who will reject Jesus when he comes again. But there is a big difference between Archelaus and Jesus. Archelaus was hated. He was a terrible ruler. He was ruthless. And his enemies had no chance. But Jesus is not. He's not a terrible ruler. He's not an evil man. Jesus' heart, as we saw, was to come and seek and save the lost. He laid down his life to do so, and that's what he did to do, came to do his first time he came. In John 3, 17, it tells us, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He is the king that came down, humbled himself, and gave his life so that his people would be saved. And as that king was nailed to that cross, one of Jesus' final last words, as he was in the face of his enemies, the people who spit on him, mocked him, beat him, and nailed to that cross, what did Jesus pray? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus came to love, to seek, and save his enemies. But there will be a day when he will return, and for those who have rejected them, for him, rejected him, there will be eternal consequences. And so he uses this extreme language to express to them the, just the direness importance of those who reject him. And so if today, if you do not know Christ as your personal savior, if your faith and trust is not resting in him, I want to encourage you, I implore you, first, not to look at Jesus as some evil tyrant who enjoys punishing sinners, but as a king who humbled himself, who gave his life for you so that you would be saved from your sin. And second, I would encourage you to ask questions, maybe even pray, and think about what God is speaking to your heart today about your sin, forgiveness, and restoration. And know that Pastor Shin and myself, we would love nothing more to explore these questions with you. So we, we would encourage you to come and talk to us or any other believer in this room. Because this is of the most utmost importance for your life. We're going to continue on and we see the second type of person. It's the faithful servants to the king. The faithful servants to the king. So as we saw earlier, the nobleman went off to a distant land. He called 10 servants, and to each servant he gave one 
mina, and he told them to conduct business and put the mina to work. So let's see what happens. Let's look down to verses 15 to 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 more minas. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So we see the king rewarding his faithful servants for the work that they did. And these two servants, you can group them together as representing one group, faithful servants of the king. And now, this parable is not trying to teach us about how much we've been given and how much we produce, right? There is the idea that if we've been, giving this, we've been given this amazing musical talent or the gift of teaching or just lots of finances, that much is required of us to produce a lot for God's kingdom. While we do believe that, you know, the blessings that we receive, we want to use it to bless others, that's not what the parable is teaching us here today. So what is Jesus trying to teach? Remember that he gave each servant one mina. It's an equal amount across the board to each servant. And this represents that every follower of Christ is given one universal task for the Lord. It's to serve him faithfully. This is what this parable is about, serving God faithfully. This is what the king is interested in. At first glance, when we look at the English translation, right, it says that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And reading, by reading this word gain, we're assuming that the king was just interested in the amount that was gained, how much they were able to produce. But the Greek word actually does not carry this sense, but rather it's more that the king was interested in whether they engaged in business. Not how much they gained, but whether they engaged in his business. And so, in other words, Jesus is concerned not by how much we produce by what he's given us, but whether we have faithfully dedicated to follow him in all the areas of our lives. J.R. Packer says it like this, faithfulness is our business, fruitfulness is an issue that we must be content to leave with God. You know, a lot of us, we live in a very, you know, goal-oriented society, a results-oriented society. We always want to know, what is the result of our labors? How does I, how do I benefit? How does other people benefit from our labor? But this this parable is showing us when we faithfully serve God, we leave the fruit, we leave the growth, the product to him and trust in him. And our responsibility alone is just to be faithful. It's just to be faithful in our homes, in our jobs, in our relationships, with the coworker who drives you up the wall, with the family member who you just don't get along with, with your friend who doesn't know Christ, in all the areas that God has called you to. In all the areas that you face in your daily life, are you being faithful to Christ? Are you letting the scriptures guide your decision as you navigate these areas? Are you seeking to exemplify and follow Jesus' character? Are you submitting your wills to him, to his, in these areas of life? Do you share the gospel and desire to see people saved? Are you faithful in serving him? 
And finally, we're going to look at the third person, the false servants of the king, the false servants of the king. We're going to look down and read verses 20 to 25. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might, I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Now we see this servant is actually no servant at all. He was given a mina from the Lord, and he was entrusted to engage business with it. But rather, what did he do? He hid it in a handkerchief. Now, this was an actual attested practice by Jews at the time. They would hide money in a handkerchief, right? But it was reckless. It was a form of recklessness. It was better for him to bury the money in the ground. It would have been safer there. So we see that this servant is reckless with what he's been entrusted with, not a true servant. And what else? What is his excuse? What does he say? He says to the nobleman, I knew you to be a harsh man. You take what you did not reap, and you, you take what you have not earned, what you have, not, what you have deposited. And so he's accusing the nobleman of being a harsh man, a thief. And so he is no true servant at all. He does not truly know who his master is. You can imagine the Jews at this time, hearing this story from Jesus in the parable, they get to the servant and they go, you fool, you fool. You're, the nobleman is such a gracious man. Look at the way he rewarded the first two servants. We see that the third servant was no true servant at all. And sometimes as we live out our faith and we seek to faithfully follow God, we get the wrong idea of who God is. We get the idea sometimes that God is harsh and he's demanding. And we give him that label and it causes us to stumble as we live our lives for him. It hinders our walk with him. Charles Spurgeon gives this illustration of this widowed woman. Um, and she was having financial difficulties, financial problems. And the pastor of the church he wanted to, he made a collection of offering, and he wanted to go to her and give her this money to help her in her troubles. And so after his lunch break, he would swing by the house, and he would knock on the door, but no one would answer. The next day, after lunch, he would do the same thing. He would knock on the house, and nobody would answer. And he would do this for the rest of the week. And then come Sunday, when he met this lady at church, the pastor says to this lady, I tried to come by to help you and give you this gift. Where were you? And the lady says to the pastor, oh, I thought you were the debt collector. I thought you were coming to my house to ask for the rent money. And many times in our walk with God, we approach him in a similar way. We feel that he is a debt collector, that we owe him a certain thing and that he's harsh. And what we do is we close ourselves off to him. But rather, he is a God who comes to us with grace, with love, and encourages us and helps us as we live out our faiths for him. We must know who God is 
in order to walk properly with him. And finally, we're going to look at this last point, a king full of grace. King full of grace. So we saw that Jesus is a king to come, that his kingdom will come at a later date. We see that there's three different types of people, and that we know that Jesus is a king to be served. And as we read through, these, through this parable, if you look at these minor details that are in it, we're going to see just how full of grace Jesus really is. How full of grace Jesus really is. Let's look at the mina ratio again, right? This servant is given one mina, and he earns 10 minas with it. That's in a 1,000% profit. And the second servant, right, he's given one, he earns five. That's 500% profit. If any of you have been in investing, that is a ridiculous growth. It's like hitting the lottery. It's very hard to do. And what does the servant say when he, when he goes to the master? He says, Lord, it is your mina. It's humility. He recognizes that mina that he began with was a gift of grace from God. And so he takes that to the marketplace, and it grows to a 1,000%. And what this outrageous profit margin is showing us is that it is God's grace that he was even able to get that profit. It was God's sovereignty and control over the market that this, this servant was able to get such a beautiful profit. Again, it's God's grace to be able to produce fruit from our labor that we give to him. And then how does the, um, the, the nobleman reward him? He hands him 10 cities to rule over. Imagine if Jesus came to you today, here's 10 million won. Invest it. Go put it to work. You put it in coin. You put it in a small business, venture, whatever, startup. And it increases to 100 million won. You'd be floored by that, right? And it's all grace. It's all Jesus doing that for us. And then he goes to you, good job. You've been very faithful. You can now rule over Seoul, Tokyo, Pusan, Shanghai, whatever 10 cities you want, you are now ruling over. It's a disproportionate reward for the work that began with God's grace being given to your life. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Grace. Jesus is the gracious king. And we see in verse 26, right, as Jesus takes away the mina from the unfaithful servant, he gives it to the servant with 10 minas, again, giving more grace to his faithful servant. It's unfair. It's so unfair the amount of grace that God pours into the lives of his people. He lavishly showers us with the grace that we don't deserve. Jesus came as the king, and he will come back one day to rule in fullness and bring judgment. And as believers, our fate is sealed. We will be with Christ in paradise. We will spend eternity with God. But the way we live life right now impacts eternity. There's a very popular tagline a ministry uses, and it's called, right now counts forever. Right now counts forever. Church, you serve a king who gave his life for you and showers you with grace, more than you can imagine, far more than you could ever deserve. And on that final day, he will shower you with more grace for faithfully following him. And here's the thing. It's not about perfectly following him. We can't do that. There are days where we fail to be faithful. There are days where 
we don't desire it. There's days that our hearts stray from him. But you have a king who is faithful to you, who holds you in his hand and promises to never let you go. Church, serve him faithfully in the areas he has called you, holding on to the hope of his return, because right now counts forever. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.